Glad you guys are here. What a great day to worship the Lord together. If you're new here, thanks for being here. We're glad you are here. We'd love to get to know you better. And as Brent said, please fill out one of those connection cards. Oh, and, uh, you know, while I'm thinking about it, um, I just heard that uh, Smoky Point uh, Community Church, they, they have a mission team in Panama, right? Or, sorry, uh, Philippines right now. And they're having some issues at the border with uh, their one of their pastors got detained. And so let's pray for him. Dear Lord Jesus, we just lift up this mission team to you right now. I pray, God, that uh, you would uh, be with them in a special way, clear up this problem so that they can continue to do the trip as they'd planned, Lord. Uh, please use this this hiccup, whatever's going on, for your glory, God, uh, so that people might be reached in a way that otherwise they wouldn't have been. Please give them protection while they're there. Bless their efforts and multiply your kingdom through them and bring them back safely, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, um, curious, did any of you attend the University of Washington? A few of you did. Okay, cool. Uh, for about 30 years at the University of Washington, from 1970 to 19, uh, 2002, there was a well-known professor of sociology there named Rodney Stark. And uh, Stark didn't consider himself a religious person, but he was fascinated in religion. He specialized in the study of comparative religion. And uh, specifically, he was fascinated with Christianity and how Christianity began. Because if you think about it from just a, a, a secular, purely scientific angle, it's really fascinating. It started with this homeless guy named Jesus and 12 average disciples. And before you knew it, within a few centuries, this movement that they started had overtaken the entire Roman Empire, which no foreign nation could ever do, and it grew to become the greatest world religion that our world has ever known, and it still is. And so in his book, The Rise of Christianity, Stark argues that one of the main reasons that Christianity grew so quickly in the first few centuries especially is because Christians treasured Jesus so much that they gladly gave their lives in order to save others. Okay. That's his observation from a sociologist perspective. He writes about this terrible epidemic uh, that struck the Roman Empire in the 3rd century, around 260 A.D. And remember that Rome had no modern medicine. There were no immunizations. There were no walk-in clinics. And... At the height of this epidemic, which might have been smallpox or similar to, it was terrible. 5,000 people were dying every day in the city of Rome alone. Okay? And so there was, uh, they didn't know what to do with all the bodies. They just had this caravan of carts in the streets that loaded up bodies, and their whole job all day was keep this train going, moving bodies outside of town. And naturally, uh, this spread. That was just the city of Rome, but it spread throughout the whole Roman Empire, um, people were freaking out. But the interesting thing he notices from the accounts we have still recorded is that the Christians weren't freaking out, and they were the only ones not panicked. But instead, it says they were the ones who actually risked their lives to care for the sick people, to stay in the town, even though this disease was very contagious. Dionysius of Alexandria, uh, Alexandria, he was a Christian elder, and he wrote this in about 260 AD. 
Most of our Christian brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, which means elders, deacons, and laymen, winning high commendations so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. And then Dionysius writes how other people responded. He says, the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease, but do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Now fast forward 100 years, 360 AD, the Roman emperor Julian launched a campaign to create pagan charities in order to match the efforts of the Christians. Julian complained that the pagans needed to equal the virtues of Christians because all of this Christian growth they were seeing was attributed to the virtues of Christianity, which included laying down your life for others. The title of today's sermon is Multiplication by Death. That is the lifestyle that Jesus modeled for us. Multiplication by death is the way that Jesus rescued us from our sin. And multiplication by death is the message that Jesus taught. The kingdom of God grows when Christians die. Sometimes through physical death, but also by dying to ourselves. And by dying to sin. And by dying to the world around us. The first Christians uh, treasured eternity with Jesus so much that they were willing to die in order to spread Jesus' love. And those Christians not only died physically, but they also died to themselves. They died to their self-centeredness. They died to their personal safety. They died to the belief that this world is all there is to live for. And they were simply following the example of our master, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And last Sunday we read about how Jesus rode on the back of a donkey's colt into Jerusalem where he knew people were waiting to kill him. Jesus was dead to self-centeredness. He was dead to the idea of personal safety at all costs. Jesus was dead to the world. And because Jesus was dead to these things, and because of his eventual physical death on the cross in our place, Jesus rescued every human being who's ever turned to him in faith. And God's con uh, his kingdom continues to expand to this day. Multiplication by death. Okay, if you got your Bible with you, turn with me to John chapter 12. 
verses 20 to 26 we'll be looking at today. John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. Let's ask God to teach us with his spirit now. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word that you've given us. We thank you that uh, you never fooled us into thinking that following you would be easy. You told us that we must die to ourselves daily if we're going to follow you. You told us that we must take up our crosses with you daily and suffer for you. And at the same time, God, we celebrate that you promise us eternal life. You, you, you give us the joy of your salvation, and we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, as we open your word today, please speak to us because we need your help. Uh, we need your help to read this passage, to hear it, to understand it, to be changed by it, and then to act on it. And in your name, Jesus, we resist Satan and any evil forces and we do that in the name of Jesus. We claim this property in your name and your power. For your glory we pray. Amen. Okay, John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Amen. So Passover is going on here, uh, the Passover festival in Jerusalem, when hundreds of thousands, potentially even millions of people uh, migrated to Jerusalem to celebrate at the one Jewish temple, right? And verse 20 says that among all the people who came to worship the Lord at this Passover were Greeks. And we don't know whether these Greeks had converted to Judaism, but they would have likely been known as God-fearers, okay? Um, they would have been allowed to worship in certain areas of the Jewish temple. And these Greeks come to talk to one of Jesus' disciples, Philip. Now, probably because Philip lived in Bethsaida, which was an area that had a lot of Greeks, or because Philip's name was a Greek name. But either way, uh, the Greeks approach Philip. They essentially tell him, we want to meet with Jesus and talk to him. We want to learn more about Jesus. And so Philip finds one of the other disciples, Andrew. They talk about it. And then Andrew and Philip go together to find Jesus, and they tell him that these Greeks want to meet with him. And until now, Jesus uh, had been telling everyone uh, that this hour had not come yet, that we keep reading about. But the next thing Jesus says in verse 23 is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Okay. So there's something about these Greeks traveling to Jerusalem during Passover to see Jesus that triggers Jesus' focus onto this hour that he'd been talking about. Uh, remember, so far, he's been telling people the hour has not come yet. When his mom asked him to turn water into wine, Jesus said, it's not my hour yet. Uh, when the uh, temple guards were sent to go arrest Jesus, they couldn't get their hands on him because Jesus' hour hadn't come yet. When the crowds tried to kill Jesus, they couldn't do that because his hour hadn't come yet. But now Jesus says, his hour has come. And then he calls himself the Son of Man again, which is an ancient title in the Old Testament for the Messiah sent by God to save the Jews. And Jesus explains that the hour has come for him, the Son of Man, to be glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? Well, to be glorified means to have attention called to your greatness and supreme value. To have attention called to your glory. So Jesus is saying that the hour has come for attention to be called to his greatness and supreme value. Now the bizarre thing, man, this has been melting my brain all week is the way that Jesus would be glorified. Jesus was glorified by being accused falsely. He was glorified by being tortured. He was glorified by being condemned to death and then nailed on a wooden cross. When you think of a king in glory, displaying, displaying the, his supreme greatness and value, you think of a king dressed in royal robes with a golden crown on his head and seated high above on a throne where he rules with power and everybody else around him serves on him hand and foot. You don't think of a king being stripped of his clothes and having a crown of thorns pressed onto his head and being nailed to a wooden cross where he is raised up, but he's raised up to be mocked and punished. But Jesus says that his death on the cross is the greatest display of his glory that humanity has ever known. How can that be? How can the cross of Christ be glorious? Well, remember that the glory of God is the public display of all that God is in his perfection. And God is glorified when we see him in his glory and when we enjoy him for all that he is in his perfection. And on the cross, Jesus most clearly shows us who God is and what he has done for us. On the cross, think about everything Jesus shows us on the cross about God. Jesus shows us his righteousness because he is the perfect Passover lamb. He is the one without blemish. He is without sin. He has been perfectly obedient to God. We see his righteousness. On the cross, Jesus shows us his justice, the justice of God, because he shows us, yes, there is a thing as sin. There is objective truth. No matter what you hear, there is such a thing as evil. It is not determined by us. It is determined by God, and it can't go unpunished because God is just, and Jesus deals with our sin for us on the cross. 
On the cross, Jesus shows us God's wrathfulness towards sin. God hates sin because it dishonors him and it destroys us. And so the punishment for sin is death. That's what the Bible says over and over. The punishment for sin is death. And Jesus suffers God's wrath for us on the cross so that all who trust in him will not suffer God's wrath in eternity. And on the cross, Jesus shows us his mercy. He is merciful because he doesn't punish us according to what we deserve. And on the cross, we see Jesus as gracious because he suffers in our place even though he didn't have to. And on the cross, Jesus shows us his humility because he was humiliated for us on that cross. He was stripped of his clothes. He was spat upon. He was mocked by that crowd. He died a violent, horrific death. Death is a violent thing. We don't want to see it. But this was a very violent death in front of a crowd that was acting very demonic. On the cross, Jesus shows us his power, too, though, because Jesus was in control of his execution. Jesus allowed himself to be captured and condemned and crucified. With one thought, the scripture says that he could have come down from that cross and destroyed everyone there, but he didn't. Think about how powerful he is. He's so powerful that he endured the wrath of God towards sinners, and he did not forfeit. He didn't wave the white flag halfway through and say, I can't do this. He endured all of God's wrathfulness towards sin. On the cross, Jesus shows us his love. He is love because it was his love for us. It was his love for the glory of God that kept him on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus shows us his holiness. He is the only one who could take away our sins. And he is the only one who did take away our sins. Jesus is holy. He is set apart from you and me, from every other human that's ever lived. And the cross shows us his holiness. He's in his own league. So in the horror of the cross, Jesus is glorified as our God and Savior. And this is what I was contemplating this week. Often scripture talks about Glory following suffering, right? We suffer, but there's, we look forward to glory. And yes, that is true. But in Jesus, and even in our own lives because of Jesus, we see that there's glory in the suffering, which is mind-blowing. And that's only because of Jesus' redemption work on the cross. Jesus is glorified as our God and Savior. And if you trust in God as your Savior in Jesus then he will save you and glorify you because you're united to him. It's incredible. This is why it's the gospel. We could be his glorified sons and daughters. Amen. Now Jesus, it says, so Jesus' hour here is, it's come, and it's identified partly because of these Greeks who came to see him in Jerusalem. Remember, most of Jesus' public ministry was spent with, to the Jewish people, Right? Um, He was hanging out in the Jewish areas because the Jewish people are the people to whom God gave the prophets and the law. It's from the Jewish people that Jesus came. 
But Jesus left heaven and came to earth not only to save Jews, but to save people from all people groups on the earth. And in fact, what we see in this chapter and what we're going to continue to see is that Jesus is rejected by the Jewish people, many of them, while the Greeks and the other non-Jews pursue him. And Jesus plans to multiply his kingdom, to multiply the glory of God through his death. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus did not come to earth to be a seed that remained a seed and that did not bear fruit. Jesus came to earth to be a seed that's buried in the ground and dies and then bears much fruit. Jesus came to give his life so that there would be new life and lots of new life. And his wording is interesting here. He says that if a grain of wheat is going to multiply, it must go into the ground and die. And the seed, there's different interpretations of what this means. But this is how I best understood it this week. That the seed dies not in the sense that it's impotent or that it gets infected and dies, but the seed dies in the sense that it gives its life so that new life can sprout out of it. So when the seed sprouts into a plant, it is no longer a seed. It's a plant, and the seed is dead in that sense. It's no longer what it once was. The seed must die to being a seed in order for new life to come from it. And likewise, it's only because Jesus took on a body of flesh and became our sin on the cross that he could then kill our sin in his body in order to save you and me. Only because of Jesus' death on the cross does the Holy Spirit make us new so that we're alive to God spiritually for the first time ever as we trust in him. This is what Jesus did for us by dying. And now, Jesus' game plan for you and me, if we are his followers, if we have trusted in him, his game plan for us is to die to ourselves so that we will multiply God's glory on earth and in heaven. God has given us the Holy Spirit. God's given us the gospel. God's given us the power of Christ in order to use us in his ongoing mission to bring the dead to life in this broken world. And Jesus' plan is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, okay? That's what we want to do individually as Jesus' disciples. That's what we want to do as a local church, to make disciples who make more disciples. We want to be fruitful. Let's keep reading to see what Jesus says this must look like. Verse 25 says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever loves his life loses it. If you love your life on earth, you will lose it. If you worship life on earth in such a way that you spend 
all your money, all your time, the majority of your energy on things of this world that are here today, they'll be gone in a flash, then you will become exactly like those things. You will be here today, but you will be gone tomorrow. You will not have eternal life, Jesus says. But if you hate your life on earth, if you hate your life in the sense that your quality of life, that your safety, that your security, that your earthly pleasures are not what you treasure most, then you will have eternal life. And you will have eternal life not because you give your money to the poor, not because you read your Bible every day, not because you try not to sin. Those are good things. Those are, can be evidences of God's grace in your life. But you will have eternal life because you believe that Jesus is better than anything the world can offer you. And it shows that you believe that. Jesus says that knowing God is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, having a friendship with God. And this is the kind of spiritual life that Jesus wants to multiply on earth using his church, using you and me. So if Jesus is your master, and if you're his disciple who wants to imitate him, then you must follow him closely. You must die on earth to the same things Jesus was dead to. You must learn to die to your pride. You must learn to die to your desire for self-preservation at all costs. You must die to your reputation. You must die to pornography. You must die to gossip. You must die to jealousy. You must die to your anger, your unholy anger and bitterness. You must die to your addictions, and we all have them. We all have addictions. You must learn to die to materialism, and you must learn to die to ease. That's what Jesus is saying. In verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So if anyone serves Jesus as his disciple, then he or she must follow Jesus. That's what he says. You can't be his disciple and not follow him. You can't be his disciple and not walk closely with him and, and not work to imitate him. That's what it means to be his disciple. Jesus has made us born again. That's the first step of discipleship. And now, as we continue being his disciples, we do everything we can to die to ourselves by the power of the Spirit and to imitate Jesus while at the same time we rest in the fact that Jesus died for us on the cross and in his resurrection. Okay? And as a result, God's kingdom grows. Jesus says that where he goes, his disciples go. Jesus prayed, so we pray. That's why we pray. Jesus prayed. Jesus was mocked for righteousness, so we will be mocked for righteousness if we're his disciples. 
Jesus was betrayed because of his loyalty to God, so we will be betrayed for our loyalty to God. Jesus wept by, and, and hungered, and he thirsted, and he slept, so we will weep and hunger and thirst and sleep. Jesus embodied your sin and died on the cross, so your sin died on the cross, when you, and you were buried in the ground with Jesus when he was buried. Jesus was resurrected in glory, and so we have been resurrected spiritually, and we will be resurrected bodily in glory. Jesus is declared righteous in God's sight, so you've been declared righteous in God's sight. Jesus has conquered Satan eternally, so you've conquered Satan eternally. Jesus lives in heavenly peace, so you will live in heavenly peace. Amen? And Jesus says here that if we serve him, then God the Father will honor us. We live to honor God, and because God is so gracious, he promises to honor us eternally. That's amazing. <laughs> to have God honor you because of what he's done for you. It's incredible. That's amazing grace that God redeems our life and honors us. All to the praise of God's name. Now, that's what I want to do in our time together. I want to make this more concrete because some of this is, man, it's, it's really hard to grasp. It's great to grasp. On your drive, think about this this week. This is incredible. Um, what does dying to ourselves mean? What does bearing fruit for the glory of God look like in our daily lives? I came up with a lot of examples. You could probably come up with examples. Maybe in your community group, you could come up with more examples this week. Let me give you five examples I thought of, okay? First, so again, what does dying to yourself so that you could bear fruit for the glory of God look like? First, if you're a new parent, then God is opening you up to a new world of changing diapers and folding laundry and cleaning up after your kids and cleaning the house two, three, four times a day, buying groceries, cooking meals, cleaning up the house, sleep deprivation, dealing with temper tantrums, the kids and your own. <laughs> and you're likely learning what it means to die to yourself. Parents must die to things in order to give life where it matters most, okay? Moms and dads do not have time or energy to do all the hobbies they did before they had kids. That's okay, okay? That's how it is. That's good because your kids are more important than all those other things. God has made you a steward of a human life. God wants you to walk with him and to talk to Jesus and to read his word. And God wants you to pray to him for your kids and talk to your kids about Jesus and model Jesus' love and forgiveness for your kids because those kids are your fruit. They are the lives you are growing for the glory of God to the best of your ability. And growing and nourishing children in the Lord requires a lot of sacrifice and a lot of dying to yourself as a parent 
and a lot of putting your pride on the shelf and saying, you know what? I shouldn't have talked to you that way. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? You got to model the gospel for your kids. Parenthood. Second, let's say you got a friend at school or a neighbor or a coworker who you don't think goes to church or maybe who doesn't appear to be a Christian and you would like to talk to them about God, uh, maybe invite them to church, but you're scared. Because if they find out you're a Christian, they might make fun of you. If, if you invite them to church, they might reject you. That could be embarrassing for you. What if they don't like you anymore? What if they're mean to you? What if you start getting called a Bible thumper and a bigot? Well, you have to die. <laughs> we have to die. We have to die to our fear of non-Christians. We have to die to our fear of other people's opinions of us. We have to die to our reputation. Because as Christians, we have to understand our lives aren't ours anymore. Our reputations are no longer our reputations. Our jobs are no longer our jobs. They all belong to Jesus. Okay? This is what Paul's talking about, Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. So I died. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the key characteristic. So when we die to these fears of people, non-Christians specifically we're talking about right now, and when as a result we live for Christ, we have confidence then that even if they reject us, even if the world rejects us, we will still be accepted by the person whose acceptance matters most, Jesus. Now flip it and think about this. What if someone did talk to you about God because you died to your fear of him or her? What if someone did come with you to church because you died to your fear of him or her? What if someone did trust in Jesus because you died to your fear of talking to him or her about Jesus? It's hard, huh? Is it hard for anybody else in here? Man, I felt convicted. Well, man, when you're preaching and when you're preparing, you get convicted, which is good. Because I really believe the pastor has to own this personally before he steps into the pulpit. I got convicted this week. I had a neighbor I love dearly. I've tried to invest in him and build a relationship, and I had to get on the text. I texted him this week and said, hey, man, if you're ever interested in studying the Bible, I would love to study the Bible with you this summer if you're interested. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe... He won't ever talk to me again. <laughs> it could happen. It's happened before. But what do I lose if I don't do that? <laughs> right? Could lose him. This is what I know. We're both going to stand before God on the judgment day. And I at least want him to know, I prayed for you and I invited you. And I really wanted to study that Bible with you. This is how the kingdom of God multiplies. Christians die by treasuring Jesus more than they treasure their own reputations and God's kingdom advances. 
I don't say that example to make myself look like a hero. Most of the time I use illustrations to make myself look really um, bad. Um, but that was just an example that came to my mind of what does this look like in real life? Third example, has there ever been something that you really wanted to buy? Okay. Maybe it was a piece of clothing, a new toy, a new type of vehicle. You were psyched, you bought it, but then you found out, man, this is not everything I hoped it would be, right? You built it up in your mind so much that you had to have this thing, then after a while you realized, this doesn't give me that much happiness. Um, and maybe now you don't even know where it's at. Maybe it's hanging on the wall of your garage. Material possessions promise to complete us, to satisfy our needs and greatest desires, but they never do. That's why we keep buying more of them, right? Because, man, maybe this time it'll be different. By the power of God, we have to die to our greed for man-made possessions. Nothing in this world can give you that never-ending high that you're looking for. You will always be let down. I will always be let down by the things of this world. Instead, Jesus tells us to invest our paychecks and our properties and our possessions into his kingdom. Okay? So we set aside money, every paycheck, we give it to the church. We set aside other money as God leads us to support missionaries and compassion children and Christian ministries. We use other money to help our neighbors in need, and by God's grace, maybe they could see that we don't worship our money the way the world does. And as we invest our paychecks and our properties and our possessions into God's kingdom work, the work of Jesus is furthered in our community and into the ends of the earth. That's what happens. We have to die to ourselves, though. Fourth example, <clears throat> humanity is in a sad, terrible state around the whole globe, okay? Sick people are dying by the tens of thousands every day of preventable diseases. False gods are being worshipped by billions of people. False gospels are being preached to billions of people. Thousands of people groups do not have access to hearing about Jesus, and lots of people are going to hell every day without Jesus. That's the reality of our world. We need Christian men and women to take the true gospel of Jesus to parts of the world where the gospel has been perverted and where the gospel has not yet been preached. If you are a disciple, then you are called by God to be part of international missions work either as a prayer and or as a giver and or as a goer. And all three of those things require dying to yourself. But I want to take a minute to talk about the goers. We don't talk about this probably enough at our church, but reality is that God might be calling you, yourself, your family, to leave America and to take the gospel and the love of Jesus to foreign countries. Okay? I'm talking to you, not this crowd. I'm talking to you as an individual. It could be for a week. It could be for a year. It could be for the rest of your life. This is the question we must each ask. Am I willing to go 
if it's real clear the Lord is telling me to go. I was so encouraged by talking to one of our new members, Otis, who, uh, when he told me, he's gone to Africa five times to serve the Lord, and that was all after he retired. Is that incredible? Overseas missions work is not just for young people. If God has called you to go, then he will give you what you need to go. But make no mistake about it, international missionaries and their families, most of them or a lot of them, who leave their homes to minister in foreign places, die in more ways than most of us can imagine. In order to leave America, you have to die to the American dream. They must die to the idea that safety and self-preservation is the most important thing in life. International missionaries must die to the idea that my family and my dear friendships that I love are the most important thing in this life. International missionaries must die to many of the commodities we take for granted, like houses, nice houses with insulation and clean water and running water that you get in your own house and private toilets where every time you sit down, you don't have to worry, am I going to get a disease right now? They leave commodities like emergency rooms and good hospitals within 15 minutes and safe neighborhoods and policemen who actually look after you. And they leave military protection. But think about this. It's only because of joy-filled international missionaries who died to all these things that any of us came to Christ. The gospel was taken to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world, to Europe, and eventually to America, where we are. We have the Bible in our language because of people who risk their lives to translate God's word into English. Dying to themselves, international missionaries are taking the true gospel to all the people groups on earth, and God might be telling you he wants you to be one of them. He wants you to do that with your life. Teenagers, you might be the one that God's calling. And you know what? It might mean that you die overseas for the Lord. But you know what? You stay here, you're going to die too. That's the reality. So if the Lord calls you to go, then go. And whether we go or whether we stay, this is the deal. We as a church, we as individuals have to support the mission joyfully to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Amen? Okay, fifth example, last example. My first year at Cedar Home, I was part of a brand new community group uh, that met on Tuesday nights. We met every week for seven years. And over those seven years, we grew very close to each other as we studied the Bible together every week, as we prayed together, we cried together, we served together. And after about seven years, we looked around in our group and said, you know what? We got about four or five couples in this group who could lead their own community groups. But we like being together. And it would stink to split up our little thing we got going here. But we have a lot of new people come to our church. And we need to make room for them so that they can be in gospel community too. 
So we talked about it, we prayed about it, and our group died in order to multiply new life. And our community group formed four new community groups out of that one group, and they're still going strong. Now listen to this. A few months ago, we added 26 new members to our church. 20 of those new members attend one of those four new community groups that came from the first one. That's gospel multiplication. That's what it looks like. Our community group was very comfortable, but we split in order to love other people at Cedar Home to continue to expand God's kingdom on earth, even though it was painful. Our church and community is a healthier place because of it. So whether we're talking about parenting or evangelism or materialism or missions or community groups or any other areas of our life, the way to multiply the glory of God on earth is to die to ourselves, to die to this world, and to know that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all of it. Jesus, and this is, this is part of the fuel for this, we know that Jesus' salvation is an eternal salvation. Okay, we will have forever in this life to hang out with our, or forever in eternity to hang out with our friends who love Jesus. We will have forever in eternity to enjoy the things of God which have been given to us in Christ. But in heaven, we will not be sharing our faith anymore. We will not be doing mission trips. We will not be taking the gospel to unreached people groups because these things are only for this 80-year period we have on earth. So may Jesus give us courage, you and me courage, to follow him closely so that we taste his suffering, but at the same time we taste the joy of his salvation. And may we read God's word individually and as a church and meditate on what do I need to die to so that God's glory can be displayed and multiplied in this place around me. And may we celebrate that We're not saved. You and I are not saved by our ability to die. We're not saved by our ability to kill all of our sins in our lives. We're not saved by our ability to grow God's kingdom in an impressive way. We are saved eternally because Jesus was the seed that died for us in order to give us true life now and forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for being the seed that died for us in order to save us. These are uh, deep, heady truths, God, that need to sink down into our hearts. Uh, This isn't something we could just say, oh, I've got that figured out. These are things that we need to meditate on, God. Some of the things we need to die to in our lives are obvious. Some of the things aren't. But Lord, please live in us. Teach us to treasure you and your eternal life more than this world. Help us to take great risks for your glory. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.